Okay. Welcome, everybody. It's the Sunday evening read session. Let me pull this over here. Uh, give everybody some time to come in here, and we'll start. Um, just a quick FYI, I have a small rip in my left contact, so my vision is not the greatest today, so hopefully it won't affect my, my, my eye movement as I'm reading, but uh, I like doing this stuff on Sundays. In fact, I have one of my guests, that one of the guests that's been on the show, also writes, well, she actually writes fiction um, ghost stories. So she asked me if I'd be willing to read one of her books, and I thought, sure, why not? You know, some short stories that she has. So when we get done with the Ghost of Flight 401, we're going to do that. I've allotted an uh, hour and a half because these chapters are, are real big and they're real long in this book. Uh, and that's about what it took last weekend at, at a good pace to get through two chapters. So we're looking at a little after 7.30 to finish tonight with the read. But uh, I like these reads. I'm having fun with them. And this is a book that I've read since, uh, since, I've been, since I was like 12 or 13 years old. I've, I've just always read, had this book somewhere in my house, you know, and uh, yeah. Looks like my head's on crooked today, doesn't it? Looks like my head's crooked. But anyway, I want to welcome everybody. We are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. And you can find us at www.californiahaunts.org. Our radio site is CaliforniaHaunts.radio, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, and all of our videos are there for, for you to peruse and check out, and someone's in my chat room already. Who's in my chat room already? Pamela! Okay, see? And so you can peruse all our video, 170 videos that we have on the California Haunts, on the California Haunts radio pay, channel page on YouTube. You can peruse all those either on YouTube or go to our website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com and you can check them all out. Now, if you happen to be watching from YouTube for the show, look down in the bottom right-hand corner and you will see a little ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. If you click on that ghost, that you that will help you subscribe to our video, to all our videos, so you know when a new one's coming up. So uh, we, we like subscribers, so the more of you we have, the merrier, okay? And again, today is a reminder, if you like what you see, share it with five people you know. If you don't like what you see, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio, okay? Anyway, give a couple more minutes for people to come into the chat room. Um, again, I talked about this last week a little bit with this book. It's just something that I was always a reader as a kid. My dad was always into books like this, and this is how I got, in, I, I got into books like this. And so when I discovered this book, this was something that I always had. In fact, even in my adult life, I always, even if the copy I had was old and, and, and wet, like, like the, one I, the one I had before, two copies before this was, it fell, I'm assuming it fell on the toilet, but nobody said anything. And I'm assuming they kept it because it didn't fall on the bad part of the, it didn't fall on top of anything in the toilet. It just fell in the toilet water. Uh, but I remember having to peel the pages apart, you know, because they were stuck together in some places. And so I finally ordered another paperback, and then that paperback, something happened, that one to the point where the pages were falling out of it. So then I finally found one on Kindle, and that's the one I'm reading today is the one on Kindle. So if everybody is ready, without further ado, let's do this. Let's read The Ghost of Fly 401. Now, when we left off, we're in Chapter 3 right now. Quick recap. Um, the book started out kind of talking about some of the ghost appearances on the airplanes, and then it went into how busy the writer was, and he'd want to get involved in writing, you know, in writing a book about the ghost. 
and then it, it and then it, it takes us into the story itself you know where he starts to look into it more and start doing research and now we're at the point where uh the, the night of the crash and uh it, it's around new year's and some people were flying in from new york to miami and right now where we start out the plane has just crashed in the everglades okay so that's where we're starting and so we're in chapter three so without further ado let's do this and like I said, um, these chapters are huge. So we're looking at about an hour and a half to get through two chapters. No matter how, I, mean, I could read this really fast and, you know, you guys will get whiplash, but I don't want to do that. Chapter three. Nearly 20 miles away from the Everglades, a very eager group of friends and relatives was waiting outside Eastern Gate 87 at the Miami International Airport. The computerized TV screens were flashing the usual departures and arrivals. The faces were upturned and anticipating. The reaction was good. Flight 401 was cleared for landing. The bright green figures showed on the screen, practically on schedule. Joan Escal, who by family rule had flown down the night before on the same flight, was pleased. With her three teenage daughters already down in Miami for vacation, they would be joined by her husband, Jerry, on schedule. So, Sonny Rubin, a retired chiro chiropractor from North Miami, was, was particularly happy when he saw the figures on the screen show that Flight 401 was cleared for landing. He was waiting with his two grown daughters at the airport to meet his 24-year-old son, Steve, who was flying down on 401 with his wife, Rochelle, nearly eight months pregnant. A grandchild was in the making. The family reunion plan for the, new, for the new year would be all the more joyous. The family affair Infantino was waiting patiently for her and Ronald to arrive. Kathy De La Rosa, Ferro's, Ferro's sister, had the New Year's Eve celebration nicely planned at her home on Southwest 17th Harris. Farrah's mother would be there to celebrate with the young bride and her son-in-law also. Waiting at the gate at the airport, Sadie Messina still could not fight back the feeling of ominous fear she had when her husband, Rosaria, had left for New York. She could not explain why. Her two sons were with her, and she was waiting anxiously on the concourse. And some minutes after 11.30, as she waited by gate 87, she was startled to hear a familiar, sound, a familiar whistle. Her two sons heard it also. She was startled because it was the very special one that her husband always sounded when he came home. A family code signal. It came from behind her back, which was to the gate. She turned abruptly. The gate was closed. There was no one there at all. Her heart sank. She was sure now that Flight 401 had crashed. Yet there was no sign whatever at the gate that the plane was even delayed. If she was sure, she was the only one who thought so. The bright green letters on the TV monitor still showed it, the cleared for landing message. Bob Marquet, Marquet, still on the quest for the sulfur belly frog, continued to pick his way gingerly through the sawgrass and muddy waters of the swampland. The tiny eight volt frogging lamp strapped to his head through a slender pencil of light ahead of him. He guided the airboat expertly, steering it by the tail, the tall lever beside him, which guided the air rudders to the port, to port and starboard. The ingenious scow would respond to the slightest pressure on the accelerator under his right foot. There was nothing to be snagged by the sawgrass or muddy roots. The airplane engine and propeller, framed by what looked like a huge birdcage, were high above the water in mud. The rudders were mounted behind them, steering the strange-looking craft by the flow of air streaming back through them. Except for the considerable roar of the engine, the night was quiet, inviting, and beautiful. The airliner Mar Marquis had seen was still in the distance still on the horizon. 
The only thing unusual about it was its rather low altitude. Something drew Bob's attention away from and then back to where the low airliner had been flying. But the plane was not where he expected it. Instead, he saw a, Brit a, a brilliant red, ah, excuse me, he saw a brilliant red, reddish orange flash, which seemed to be about five miles away. It was hard to tell. It seemed to stretch the length of three football fields. It glowed for five or six seconds, then suddenly all went black again, back to the undisturbed darkness of the Everglades. In the radar room below the glass and control tower at Miami International, Charles Johnson, a veteran of 15 years service as an FAA controller, watched the radar scope carefully to get another reading on Flight 401. He was, he was not unduly upset at the moment. Captain Loft had shown no sign of concern on his last transmission. Just before 11.42 p.m., Loft had simply responded to Johnson's question as to how he was coming along by saying he'd like to turn around and come in for a final approach. This was a casual, normal response, but no emergency evident. To Johnson, this meant that the landing gear problem had been solved, and all was well. Although his radar data showed 401 at 900 feet, Johnson was aware that pilots with a landing gear problem often came in at an abnormally low altitude to reduce the stress on the landing gear, which might otherwise jam. He was also reminded of one time when the altitude reading for a flight he had once monitored showed a plane on his scope reading 90,000 feet, when in fact it was actually at 10,000. It is the practice of the FAF, of FAA controllers everywhere not to bother pilots with trivial matters. Pilots, in fact, resent any non-essential interference with their flights from the tower unless it is clearly and unquestionably an emergency situation. With faulty readings on altitude radar scopes not uncommon, Controller Johnson needed extra sweeps on his radar scope to double-check whether there was anything worth alarming Flight 401 about. Meanwhile, Johnson turned his attention to a land chili plane, Flight 451. It was requesting a change in altitude. A Bahama flight also wanted approval for a change in course. The exchange took 41 seconds. He turned back the Captain Loft signal from Flight 401. He was surprised to find that he was reading a void. He spoke into the microphone. And uh, Eastern 401, he said, are you requesting the emergency equipment? He wanted to find out if Captain Loft wanted fire trucks to stand by on the runway if the landing gear failed to function. There was no reply. Almost immediately after he spoke, both Land Chile and National Flight 611 came in with questions. It took a minute to clear them up. Then he came back to the air, then he came back on the air to Flight 401. Eastern 401, I've lost you on radar and your transponder. What, what's your altitude now? He waited 12 seconds and spoke again. Eastern 401, Miami. He never finished the sentence. National Flight 611 came in on a signal, loud and heavy. Approach. This is National 611. We saw a big explosion. It looked like it was out west. I don't know what it means, but I want to let you know. On the heels of this message, the Land Chile pilot came in. Land Chile 451, the pilot said. We saw a big flash. It was a general flash, like some kind of explosion. At that exact moment, Eastern Captain J.L. Tompkins was conducting proficiency tests in a plane just over the jet port training field near the Everglades. His attention was suddenly drawn to a large kidney-shaped pattern of orange flames surging up from the black Everglades. They seemed to last for two or three seconds. Then there was total blackness again. He immediately, immediately radioed the tower at the training field, then changed his heading back towards Miami International. There seemed to be a column of heavy smoke rising in the air from the place where the orange flames had flashed. But there was no further light. A beam of smoke... A beam of the smoke on the way back to the main airport 
He could see nothing whatsoever down below where the smoke had seemed to be coming from. No flashes, no lights, no activity. Simultaneously, simultaneously, I'm sorry, controller Richard Schultz was directing the close-in the close traffic from the local tower. He had been the one who handed off Flight 401 to Johnson at the time the morning light problem was first discovered. And shortly after 11.42 p.m., Schultz was occupied with several final approaches and takeoffs. N-173 West, a private plane that had, been that had just taken off, came in on Schultz's frequency. Miami Tower, 173 Whiskey. Schultz responded, 173 Whiskey, Miami. Are you missing an airplane off your scope? None of the recent Flight 401 activity had been monitored by local tower. Since Controller Johnson, as the area man, was responsible for that, not to our knowledge, Johnson replied. Schultz replied, what do you see? There was a big flash from a tremendous flame. Yes, sir, a big flash. Looked just like an airplane dove right into the ground. He had high-intensity strobe lights on his wingtips. Schultz asked him to stand by. Down in the radar room, Charlie Johnson was in the process of shifting over the special duty for handling the obvious emergency. Schultz lost no time in confirming the fact that Flight 401 was without question down in the Everglades. in a remote and inaccessible location. He came back on the radio to N173W. 173 Whiskey, he called. When will you be coming back to Miami? Tomorrow, was the reply. Okay, sir, Schultz said. When you get back to Miami, would you call Miami Tower on the telephone and describe in detail what you observed, sir? Roger. Now, if you'd like. Well, uh, we're a little busy right now. A few moments before the radio reports flooded in the approach and airport tower at Miami Eastern, in Miami, Eastern Technician Angelo Donadale had just finished squeezing into the cramped quarters of the hellhole of Flight 401 to join Second Officer Don Repo. It was a tight squeeze, but there was room enough for the two, for the two of them to walk aft without bumping into the avionic equipment in the bay. He began heading toward the periscope device to try and see what the problem was in, the ch in checking the red line indices on the nose gear. He wasn't sure, but he thought he sensed a slight reduction in altitude. At the point that he was passing the bulkhead, everything went black. He did not even remember hitting the bulkhead with his head. He felt no concussion. He was unconscious. The next thing that he could remember was that he was down on the floor of the hellhole in a sitting position. He saw water coming up to the floor. He heard Don Repo near him moaning. He began yelling for help. Repo joined him. They were both in pain and in agony, trapped in total darkness and unable to move. They felt the water rising. Sue Tebbs and Adrian Hamilton occupied the two stewardess jump seats in the first-class forward cabin. They're back to the cockpit entrance, on the starboard and port side, respectively. Sitting backward, they faced the passengers. On the go-around, Adrian, the senior flight attendant on 401, had felt no sensation of the planes pulling up to its 2,000-foot altitude. She had, she had listened as the landing gear had moved up and down two times and knew the plane was circling over the glades. From her position, she could see out the first-class windows. She thought she saw fog or clouds. She wasn't sure which. Then she felt the plane touch down. She thought it was the landing. But almost immediately, she felt herself being thrown violently to her left, toward the center of the airplane. Then she knew the plane had crashed. All the lights went out at the moment of impact. She felt water rushing over her. She put her head down and closed her eyes. Beside her was a service center. She tried to protect herself from hitting it. She found herself hanging by her from her seat, by her seatbelt. She was hit by the powerful smell of jet fuel. She released her seatbelt and slipped to the floor, which was on a rakish angle. It was extremely slippery. 
She tried to walk on it, but the pain in her back and the, and the slickness of the, pla of the plane floor caused her to fall down the slant to the starboard side of the airplane. She looked up and found that she was looking up at the open sky. There was no moon, but the stars were bright. Everything else was black. She could see enough, however, to realize that the nose section of the plane where she was sitting had split off from the rest of the L-1011. She could see what was left of the toilet. The pain in her back was paralyzing. She could barely move. Beside her on the tilting floor was Sue Tebbs. Her feet were resting on the skeleton of the open fuselage. Sue was in great pain and unable to move. It was too dark to tell how high they were off the ground. Adrian heard sounds coming from the cockpit in the nose section behind her. It was the only portion of her section that was still completely encased. They were yelling for help from down in the hellhole. She heard a voice calling out that water was coming in. She could hear moans and screams in the distance. Far back aft in the tail section, Beverly Raposa and Stephanie Stanich had been seated in their stewardess jump seats, facing forward, their backs to the bulkhead at the rear of the plane. Beverly had noted that the plane seemed to be going to circle and mentioned it to Stephanie, without concern. For some reason, she felt that the go-around was abnormally quiet. Then, suddenly, she noticed what seemed to be an increase in power. She could feel the plane bank to the left. As it did, she felt a tremendous jolt. Then the cabin seemed to be filled with a huge ball of flame, orange and pink. It lasted only for a fraction of time. There was a thunderous crash, then the sound and roar of a tornado. Her seat was thrown violently to the left and then to the right. She could see things flying all about her. She saw her arms go out in front of her, waving grotesquely from side to side. Her legs and head were thrashed viciously back and forth, but her body was held in tightly by her shoulder harness. There was a rush of wind. A liquid that seemed like jet fuel swept over her like a waterfall. Then there was total blackness. When she came to, Beverly was still in her seat, penned in by something on top of her and something to her right. She could not tell what it was. There was no sign of Stephanie anywhere. Beverly's seat was leaning far to the right, almost on top of her. To her left, there was only open space. There was no light anywhere. She wasn't sure what was on top of her. It felt like one of the inflated escape chutes but it might have been the service console. Her right hand was trapped and she couldn't free it. With her left, she lifted the object, holding, holding her down, then managed to take a deep breath and press her harness buckle with her, left, with her left thumb. Whatever had been pinning her still held her in. She pushed hard. She didn't know quite where she was, but above her she could see the stars. Suddenly she felt herself falling to the left. She landed in thick mud. She must have, she must have blanked out momentarily. But then she came to and struggled to her feet. She was standing in the marsh. The smell of jet fuel was everywhere. She cried out a warning almost immediately. No one was to light a match. She could barely see anything, but she made out the nebulous outlines of some people standing in the distance. She started to grope her way toward them, but she could hardly move through the sawgrass, six feet high in some spots, and the sharp metal pieces of the shattered fuselage. Her feet sank into the mud, <clears throat> and she cut her leg on a jagged section of the plane. She kept moving, however, painfully, stumbling toward the vague shadows of people in the distance. Stewardess Mercedes Ruiz, sitting opposite from Pat Gissels, behind the wing section of the fuselage, had not been perturbed about the go-around because it was such a common thing. It also added up, at times to a little flying time, and more pay. She finally picked up a McCall's magazine to get back to an article she had been reading. It was about people who find themselves feeling low in the holiday season, like Christmas. Then. She remembered nothing. She came to in her seat in the middle of the darkness, in the wetness of the swamp. 
Her seatbelt was in fashion. She was very cold, and she smelled jet fuel. She was bleeding from the back of her head. Pat Gissies, whom she had been sitting across from only moments before, was nowhere to be seen. Looking up from his paper book, paperback book, Barry Connell, had sensed a slight increase in engine thrust and a slight upward shift of the nose of the aircraft. It did not seem abnormal. He felt a strange jar on the left of, to the left of the plane. Then, suddenly, a loud grinding impact that sent the huge craft skewing crazily along the ground. As it did, the brilliant flash of light went through the cabin, traveling from the forward part of the plane all the way to the rear. It seemed to travel just below the ceiling height. The, fusel the fuselage spun as the plane skidded, but it did not cartwheel. It felt like a roller coaster or a wild whip ride. Then the fuselage began breaking up. There were sounds of metal tearing apart. A cold blast of air rushed in. Jet fuel began raining down heavily. The moment it happened, Connell reached over and grabbed his wife. She was on his right by the window. He pulled, he pulled her toward him, pushed her head down with his, with his, and tried to keep them in the center of the two seats to reduce exposure to the impact. Then the chunk of the plane they were on skidded backwards and came to rest. There was no part of the upper fuselage left. The cabin floor tilted crazily at a 450-degree angle. Debris was everywhere. Connell was hanging by a seatbelt, tilted toward his wife beneath him. He struggled with it, freed it, then toppled down over her to his right. He released her seatbelt, then he helped her as they forced their way out through the debris, where the fuselage kid had once been. He looked for the, steward, for, for the stewardess, Dorothy Warnock, who had been in the jump seat just in front of them. He could vaguely make out in the darkness that there was nothing left of the seat where she had been. The body of the aircraft seemed to have disintegrated. The gallery, or the galley, however, seemed to be intact to his left. Then it struck him, the fear that someone would light a match and ignite the jet fuel, which was everywhere. His first impulse was to get his wife and run, but there was no place to go. He helped his wife and several other passengers off the remnant of the cabin and down to the thick pile of debris. Both Barry and Ann Connell had lost their shoes. One woman they helped down from the wreckage was desperately looking for her husband. He had been sitting right next to her, but now could not be seen or heard anywhere. The Connells tried to look for him, but it was hopeless in the dark. The tangled wreckage, the torn and jagged metal, and the water-covered mud beneath them. There were about eight of the survivors clustered there. Everyone was drenched in jet fuel. In front of them, barely discernible in the glow of the Miami skyline, barely discernible <clears throat> in the glow of the Miami skyline, far on the horizon, they could make out what was left of their section. A fence of grotesquely tortured steel. Two of the stewardesses were, were with the group. It was hard to tell which ones they were. The Connells finally recognized Dorothy Warnock, who, with her colleague, tried to keep up the spirits of the group. They were giving encouragement, comforting two of the group who seemed to be injured more than the others. They could make it on another cluster of survivors on the other side of the wreckage. They, too, were standing, not daring to move, waiting. Some were screaming in pain. Some were bitter and acrimonious. One of those was Al Morris, the auto transmission dealer. He had suddenly seen the forward part of the plane folding back toward him and the seat tops coming together like dominoes. He had squeezed out from the wreck through a crack in a, in a door and a window. He helped several of his fellow passengers out. He could hear others all around him calling for help. He organized his small group into yelling for help in unison. Voices from another group, somewhere in the darkness, yelled back for them to shut up. That help would come. Morris cursed them and Eastern and kept his group yelling. The two groups in a macabre feud kept yelling back and forth at each other in acrimony. 
as the moans and screams of the injured and dying swirled around them. Wandering aimlessly around them, the tiny white poodle whined and whimpered, her fur soaked in kerosene. Sitting next to his new bride, Farah, Ronald in, in Infantino, and continued to wait for the long go-around to end, when Flight 401 would come <clears throat> in again for its final approach. His three-week honeymoon visit to New York had been one of the highlights of his life. His studies that would prepare him for aviation administration stretched out, far, stretched out ahead of him when he returned. Farrah made this all the more meaningful. Relaxed with the seatbelt on, he suddenly found that everything went totally black. There was no sensation of impact, no sign of what was happening to Farrah. He felt a strange tumbling sensation. When he came to, he could hear screaming everywhere around him. He found himself screaming as loudly as he could. He was on his back in the water. A section of a seat held his head and shoulders, partially above it. The rest of his body was submerged in the swamp. His seat had been stripped of its fabric. Only the metal remained. He had been completely stripped of all his clothes by the force of the impact. Only the elastic from the top of his socks remained on his ankles. He reached back and felt the upper part of his right arm. His fingers sunk deeply into a wound there. The arm seemed to be barely hanging by a thread. The pain in his right knee was excruciating. The cold on his naked body was becoming unbearable. And Farah. Farah was nowhere to be seen or heard. He struggled to get up to see if he could find her. But he couldn't move. In fact, he felt himself going deeper into the water up, to, up over his chest. The bare frame of the chair was the only thing that stopped him from sliding down into the water and drowning in less than a depth of a bathtub. The thought that Farah was somewhere near and alive kept him fighting for survival. He continued to scream, joining a chorus of others. Just before the impact, Jerry Iscal felt a violent vibration, followed by a rasping, scraping sound. The plane seemed to be splitting up in front of him. The next thing that Iscal was conscious of was that he was, he was strapped to his seat, which in turn was resting in the middle of a deep mud hole. There was a pile of twisted metal everywhere around him, with, with tall sawgrass in between, near him, out of sight, was a woman, survivor. She was screaming she was, she was drowning and that she couldn't hold on much longer. Escal was helpless to aid her. Both his pelvis and one knee was broken. He could not move. He tried to shout encouragement to the woman. His coat and shirt were ripped off. In the, cold in the coat pockets were the two coveted tickets to the Orange Bowl and the glowing letter of praise he had written to Eastern. The moment that Bob Marquis saw the orange flash from his airboat, he knew that an airliner had gone down. He estimated that it was about five miles away. He got in the throttle of the boat, pushed it to its top speed at 40 miles an hour, and plunged through the darkness and the high stock grass with nothing but a full frogging lamp on his head to guide him. To his left, he could make out the blurred outline of Levy 67A, which could act as some sort of guide to the site of the ball of fire. But it was dark in that direction now. Even the black column of smoke was dissipating. The glades, difficult enough to navigate in during the day, were twice as difficult at night. Near the levee, he swung the roaring 18-foot airboat to the right, then skimmed out along beside the levee toward the northeast. There were really no navigational guides to go by now, simply a sense of direction and a knowledge of the strange water and grass terrain of the glades. He swung his head from left to right, his lap picking up precarious path. A hidden stump, a lumpy hammock, could spin his boat out of control and catapult him into the marshes. After running about 10 minutes at top speed, he cut his 150-horsepower engine as the airboat wallowed to a clumsy stop. There was no sign anywhere now of the brilliant orange flash he had seen. The black smoke was gone, too. Not a flicker of, of a light was to be seen anywhere. 
only the dim low outline of the levee was left. It was nothing more than a long, thin pile of dirt, some six to eight feet high, with two ruts running along the top where a jeep could precariously ride on a rough, bouncing trip. In the silence, he stopped to listen. He could hear people in the distance. They were screaming and yelling hysterically. It was hard to tell how far they were, perhaps a quarter of a mile, perhaps more. He was not even certain of the direction of the voices were coming from. He started the engine and moved ahead toward the place where the voices seemed to be coming from. Then his boat suddenly ground to a stop. He jumped off and found that the shallow hull had jammed in some thick bushes. He tugged at the bow, then shoved the hull back in the water. He listened again. This time the voices were nearer, and he could sense their direction. Now they were louder, and he knew they were directed at him because they must have seen the light strapped on his head. It was only it was, it was the only light at all in the entire area. Everyone else was told everything else was totally black. Before he saw anyone, his light reflected off the pieces of wreckage. The place was a shambles. Parts of the plane were everywhere. He was the only one on the scene who had not been on the plane. He heard one scream louder than the others near him. He turned his head and his lamp and his lamp with it toward the sound. In the pencil of light, he saw a face. It was all that showed above the water like a disembodied head. It was screaming and kept dropping into the water and out again. Marquis, half in shock and hysteria himself, jumped out of the boat and sloshed through the 18 inches of water to reach the man. He was screaming that he couldn't hold his head up much longer. Marquis grabbed him, pulled him up awkwardly to a piece of wreckage, gently eased him down on it. The man looked as though both his arms and legs were broken. Marquis felt like throwing up. He thought, that's one there. There's got to be others around just like that. <clears throat> he swept his head around as a lonely as the lonely head left swung, swung across the scene. There were four or five people right in front of him, strapped in their seats, tilted over into the swamp waters. He rushed to them, straightening them up so they could breathe. He felt utterly lonely, helpless, frustrated. There was no one else to help, and the chorus of there was no one else to help, and the chorus of cries was now thunderous because his lamp was the only thing visible on the entire scene. He kept yelling back words of encouragement, telling them to calm down, to take it easy, that help was on its way. He moved as fast as he could and concentrated on one thing, saving the people from saving people from drowning in the shallow water. But some were already drowned. He began stumbling over their dead bodies lying face down in the ridiculously shallow water. They had already drowned. It was too late. Some of the dead were sitting up, strapped to their seats, scattered in the sawgrass. They looked like mannequins and many of them were naked or half-naked from the blast of the impact. At times, he would see flesh a short distance away go towards it, then find it was stuffing of a cedar cushion. He dragged the drowning up to the, up to the shallow bottom of his boat, as many as the hull would hold, but there were still more. The screams and the moans were not stopping. They were growing louder. He looked to the skies and prayed for help. Then he turned his light back toward the people among the wreckage. At the Coast Guard Air Station at Opalaca, the report came in from Miami Approach at approximately 11.45 p.m. Within seconds, the helicopter scramble alarm was sounded. Charles Cunningham, an aviation machinist, jumped out of bed and went immediately to the launching pad, where helicopters HH-52 and HH-52A were standing along with another chopper and an amphibious aircraft. Lieutenant Mike McCormick, a duty pilot, was already in action, along with other crewmen at the base. Lieutenant Bill Hodges, at the home of a friend, received a phone call from the duty section 10 minutes later and lost no time heading for the air station. 
Mike McCormick's chopper, was the first off the pad at 11.55 p.m. He headed west, out over the Miami Lakes Country Club, and then into the dead, thick darkness of the glades. There were no lights visible ahead, nothing to mark the scene visually. Miami approach had advised that Flight 401 had disappeared from the radar scope about 18 miles west, northwest of Miami International. There was a faint glow of starshine, but there was no moon. By 12.10 a.m., McCormick began sweeping the flat wilderness with his night sun light from a 500-foot altitude. He saw nothing at first, only the flat expanse of tall sawgrass soaking in the wide vegetation, vegetated sea of water. The Kansas plains could be no flatter. Then he saw it in the distance, the faint flickering pinpoint of light from the frogging lamp on Bob, on Bob Marquis's forehead. It was the only sign of civilization as far as the horizon stretched. From below, Marquis saw the helicopter approaching. At last, he thought, at last. Suddenly, cheers went up from the scattered clusters of passengers standing on the debris. The cheers mixed with the groans and screams of the injured and the dying. Marquis removed his lamp, waved it to the sky as the helicopter continued to approach. From his pilot's seat in the helicopter, Lieutenant McCormick looked down. From his vantage point, the wreckage appeared to be total. The debris was peppered everywhere, reflected in the light of his night sun. The pieces seemed to stretch in a swath as, as long as a quarter of a mile, as wide as a football field. He could make out two large pieces among the hundreds of small ones. They were the tail section and part of the cabin where the wings had been attached. They were little more than open clamshells. He continued to sweep with his nightlight. A leg or an arm would appear, sticking out of the mud, immobile. Then, near the larger section of the plane, he saw several islands of people. They were slowly waving their arms. Cautiously, he dropped the chopper to slightly below 50 feet. He orbited the scene gingerly, trying to get a total picture. Then, very carefully, he settled the helicopter lower, attempting to find a solid enough spot for landing near the wreckage. From his airboat, Marquis watched the craft settle. Suddenly, without warning, jagged pieces of metal began spewing through the air, like shrapnel. They clattered against the other pieces on the ground, spun out by the rotor wash. Marquis screamed and waved the helicopter off with his lamp. McCormick pulled up fast, circled, then tried to come down again to another spot. Again, the shrapnel began flying, whizzing dangerously close to Marquis and his airboat and the survivors. Each time McCormick tried to bring his rescue craft down, the same thing happened. He moved far off to the side. He dropped down again, this time far enough away so that the debris remained still. But directly under the landing gear was deep muck. The craft would sink into it and become helplessly mired. The best that McCormick could do under these circumstances was that one wheel barely touched the surface and work from a tiptoe position. This would not be enough. Marquis waved the craft over toward the levee. McCormick tilted the helo and slid across in the air to the dike, some 500 feet from the wreckage. Marquis skimmed across the swamp in his airboat to join him. They tried to plan a rough strategy. Marquis would, would continue to place as many victims as possible on flat chunks of metal that were able to support them and give whatever aid he could. McCormick would radio for vehicles to come out onto the ruts along the top of the levee, along the journey from the nearest road, six or eight miles away. Then he would seek a firm landing place as near as possible to the crash. Without blowing up the shrapnel and taking on as many survivors as the craft could hold. Slogging on foot from the levee to the crash site would be almost impossible. The water in some places were five feet deep, in others only six inches. The footing was treacherous, especially at night. Coming up now to the sky was HH-52A. It had just been airborne as McCormick's chopper reached the site. It arrived in the air at 12.18 a.m. Forty minutes after Flight 401 impacted, 
co-pilot Bill Hodges of the second craft saw the lights of the first chopper on the levee. It was easy to spot in the blanket of total darkness around it. It was also the light of Marquise's lamp. The airboat could be made out beside the dike, where the first helo rested. As they flew over the disaster, heading toward the levee, Bill Hodges looked down over the scattered wreckage. There could be few, if any, survivors. He was thinking. In his craft were medical corpsmen and petty officer Don Schneck, the structural mechanic, the structural mechanic. Schneck was dropped off on, on the dike near the first chopper. He was told to run over and catch the airboat out to the wreckage, 500 treacherous feet away. The, the corpsman would be dropped directly by Hilo after a safe landing spot was located near the survivors. Schneck grabbed an emergency hand radio as he jumped out and ran to the airport airboat. He got in touch with Mark. He got in with Marquis within seconds. The propeller roared and the boat aquaplane back toward the scene of the crash. Schneck jumped off near the debris, near the nose section, where the flight deck and hellhole were still encased in the L-1011 sheathing. He had a flashlight with him, a kind used to taxi an airplane to a ramp at night. There was a yellow wand on the end of it, and it made a small, concentrated shaft of light. He played ahead of him and as, he, as he sloshed through the water and mud, trying to avoid the deep holes. He could have used a better light, but he had asked a crewman to grab him a light before he left the air station, and this was the only one he could, that could be found. As he slogged toward the debris, he tried the emergency radio in his hand. Evidently, someone had forgotten to tell his helo pilot that he had it, and the receiver was not turned on back in the chopper. It turned out to be useless. Schneck kept calling the, the, the helicopter as he stumbled through the mud. No response came back. Then... Somewhere near him in the darkness, he heard a man's voice calling, Coast Guard, Coast Guard. Schneck moved toward the voice. He found a man beside his wife. She was still in her plane seat, although it sat alone in the swamp. The man pleaded with him to help his wife. She had a deep laceration in the groin. Schneck improvised the tourniquet. It applied it immediately, and it seemed to stop the bleeding. He turned his attention to the man. He seemed all right, but began to become hysterical when he saw his wife's wound in the beam of light. Schneck tried to calm him down. Then he gave him the radio and told him to keep calling back to the helo. Schneck knew it was useless, but it would give the it would give the man a distraction. When when he had done all he could for the woman, he again began walking toward the sounds of the injured. Then he heard a woman's voice calling. It was strange because it seemed to him that the voice was coming from up in the air, well off the ground. He called to her to keep talking so that he could so that he could trace where she was. He finally found her. She was in a section of the fuselage that was stuck in the ground, and she was in the top of it. It was sticking up quite high in the air above him. She did not seem to be injured. She was, stand she was standing high up on the wreckage, and she was scared and shaking. Schneck told her to sit down, that she was safer there than anywhere, in a high and dry place. She calmed down a little and then followed his suggestion. Almost immediately afterward, Schneck turned to his left and came across the first body. It was a man lying face down in the water. There was nothing he could do, but it shook him up severely. There were other cries for help, however, and he kept going. In front of him, his light picked out a large molded section of the plane. It towered over him as he stood in the swampy water. It was pitched at an angle, and it was extremely hard for, for, for Schneck to tell what section of the plane it was. He ran his light over and up and down. Then he recognized it as a cockpit section. It was lying like a dead beached whale. The black snout of the, of, uh, of the ray dome had been knocked off. The angle of the pitch of the nose section seemed to be about 450 degrees. But he could not 
see the windshield from where he stood. He passed his flashlight along the lower side of the section. He could hear two men's voices inside calling for help. He quickly looked for a way to get in the flight deck. He found a couple of small holes and poked his light through them. In among the smashed cockpit, he could see someone moving, very slightly but moving. At this moment, he heard Adrian Hamilton's voice. She was calling, come around the other side. She next struggled through the sawgrass to get around the side of the voice. Several minutes before, stewardess Adrian Hamilton had seen the light of the airboat approaching. She continued to hear Repo and Donna Dale calling for help. Adrian moved as much as she dared and yelled to them that she saw an airboat in the vicinity. It was on its way to them, and they must relax, but it seemed to take hours to reach them. The flickering light moved and stopped, moved and stopped as the boat approached. Now, with the light near enough for someone to hear, Adrian called again. The first person, Don Schnake, came, up, came upon when he got around to the other side of the wrecked nose of the plane was Sue Tebbs. She was lying just out of Adrian Hamilton. Both were in great pain. Schneck gave Sue Tebbs a superficial check and found a fracture of the lower left leg. He moved her to a piece of debris that was high and dry. Back to the cockpit, Adrian Hamilton told him of her back. Schneck's extensive first aid training told him that he should not move her. But there was a heavy beverage cart dangling above her. Adrian was worried about it. Schneck checked it and satisfied himself that it was secure. He reassured her about it. Schneck was used to fueling, <clears throat> was used to fueling planes, and he worried about the jet fuel. He found himself constantly checking for any smoldering fires. He thought he saw a faint glow several feet from the edge of the bulkhead. He went to it quickly, interrupting his investigation. It was under a life jacket from the plane. When he turned it over, he found a little survival light burning, not the glow of a smoldering fire. He was relieved. He brought the weak little light back to Sue Tebbs and gave it to her to hold, a faint source of comfort in the mass of devastation. There was other debris hanging over Adrian and it looked loose. He started pulling it away and throwing it into the blades. It was a tangled jungle. He pulled as much of the loose material away as he could. It seemed to be near the bulkhead that led to the cockpit. As Shank pulled the last loose piece away, the top of the head and shoulders of one of the flight deck crew was revealed. It was the first officer. Schneck checked his eyes and put his hand on the man's neck to check the neck. There was nothing that could be done. He was dead. Schneck poked his light into the flight deck area and swung it around. The crew seats were uprooted. Then the light struck another crew member. He was lying on the floor on his back. Schneck did not know whether he was alive or dead, but then he started to move a little. Schneck told Adrian to stay where she was and, and then went in the cockpit. He cleared one loose chair out of the way and moved some more debris to get to the man to see if it was pinned down. The uniform told him it was a captain. He had a lacerated left ear and broken ribs. His legs seemed all right. He seemed to be in shock. Then he, then he struggled, as if he were trying to get out of the plane. Schneck told him to stay still. We'll be getting you out of here pretty quick, he said. Schneck was still having trouble trying to adjust to the scene. The captain tried to move again. You made it this far, Schneck said. If you can just hang in there a little bit longer, we will get you to a hospital. Then the captain looked at Schneck and, and said, I'm going to die. Schneck argued back, trying to keep him going. He told him it was important for him to stay still until help came. Below him, in the hellhole, the voices rose again. The water was still coming up there. They were crying. We don't want to drown. Schneck had done all he could for the captain in the upper cockpit, if only, if only lending moral support. He had no first aid supplies with him. He crawled down the twisted ladder into the hellhole. Donadeo was aft, his feet propped up against the bulkhead. He told Schneck he was in pain, and Schneck did not think it was a good idea to try to move him. 
He loosened Donadale's belt and tie and opened the shirt to try to make him more comfortable. Schnick then checked him for fractures but could not find any. There was a laceration on there was a laceration on the inside of his left leg. Just forward of Donadale, the second officer seemed to be angry. Schneck told took this to be a good sign. If a man is mad mad enough, he was thinking he will fight whatever he can to stay alive. The most important thing that Schneck could do was to reassure the men that they were not going to drown. The water was only a foot or so deep. He was growing more and more frustrated. There was so little he could do. Right at that moment, he wanted to prepare a way to get the men out. The ladder was in the way, and it was partially jamming Second Officer Repo under it. Schneck pulled, pulled it out and put it, up on, put it up in the cockpit. Then he pulled himself out of, out of the hellhole and threw the ladder out of the blades. He found that the hatch door that had led down to the hellhole was in the way. He could not get the two men out that way. He kicked at it and kept kicking until it was free. Then he threw that over too. As he did so, the captain on the upper deck began moving around again, rolling over one of the fallen seats in, in pain. Schneck was certain that if he continued, it would cause further injuries. He put both hands firmly on the injured man's arms and held him down. Schneck, Schneck spoke very forcefully, and the captain calmed down. Schneck then went out to Adrian Hamilton again. He asked how many of her people were on the plane. When she told him there were 176, he couldn't believe it. He had only seen a handful as he approached the location. He looked out desperately to see if he could locate the medical corpsman. But he was nowhere evident. If he could at least get morphine, he thought that would help. With just two Coast Guard men, a frog hunter, and 176 victims, the prospect of doing much good was agonizingly slim. Next to Adrian, he noticed that Sue Tebb's leg had begun bleeding badly. He was cautious about using a tourniquet because his training had taught him that they should be used only sparingly. But the situation called for it, and he applied it. As he did, he saw the light of the corpsman, who had struggled through the swamp toward them. Schneck suggested morphine for the crew members in the forward compartment. When the corpsman, Charles W. Johnson, almost the same name as the Miami Approach Controller, came out, he and Schneck tried to figure out what to do about getting the injured out of the flight deck section. Adrian was unfortunately in the way of the small opening in the cockpit bulkhead. The only way they could get the man out, the only way they get the man out, if they pulled the injured out through the that way, they would have to take them out, out over her. They were uncertain what to do. They were afraid to move her. She had no feeling in her legs. Should they wait for a backboard? Schneck went to Adrian, put his hands around her shoulder blades, and moved her very, very tenderly. He assured her that if her back really hurt, he would stop. He moved his hands down toward the small of her back, and when he finally reached there, she said, It hurts, but it's not extreme. He picked her up gently, like a baby, and carefully put her down next to Sue Tebbs. He asked her to talk to Sue to keep her spirits up because Sue looked very pale and he was afraid she was going into shock. Then Schnick looked up to the sky and saw lights approaching. There were several helicopters, Army and Air Force, as well as Coast Guard. They, <clears throat> they were heading toward the site. Now, as they began to settle, the metal didn't fly away from the rotor wash and it had time to sink into the soft mud. At least one beach was gone. But everywhere there were bodies. It was hard to find a landing place. On the surface, the faint lights of half a dozen airboats skimmed like water bugs across the swamps towards the wreckage. Some headlights could be seen in the distance, bouncing laboriously over the bumpy ruts of the long, narrow levee. But it was still black. It was still impossible to see where the cries for help were coming from. Still almost impossible to crawl forward. Okay, but at last, help was on the way. 
and Coast Guardsman Schnink didn't feel quite so lonely. Chapter 4 Near the eastern ticket counter, the closed-circuit television screen that announced the flight arrivals and departures still showed Flight 401 as delayed. The same message blazed on several computerized screens throughout the eastern section of the sprawling terminal of the airport. As it grew past the estimated time of arrival, there was some anxiety among the friends and relatives of the passengers, but it was moderate. G.D. Welch, on duty at Gate 87, was used to delays. Every airline in the business faced them daily. She waited at the gate agent's post on Concourse 9, confident that she would get some news of the L-1011's arrival with the ramp. As the minutes dragged on, she began getting inquiries. By midnight, the inquiries were increasing, and she regretted that she had no direct information. She was in the dark as much as they were. As the, question, as the questioners began to get more restive, restive, that's the word, she tried the tower, but was unable to get through on the phone. She did her best to placate the most insistent ones and promised them she would give them more information the minute she had it. Up in the tower, the scene was grim. Freed from his routine to organize the rescue efforts, Controller Johnson had notified the Coast Guard less than three minutes after the crash. The rest of the calls followed in rapid order. The 44th Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron, the Dade County Public Safety Department, the Florida Highway Patrol, and Public Health Service, the Ambulance Service, the Miami Fire Department, an Army Reserve Unit at Opelaka, Reserve Squadrons from Homestead and Patrick Air Force Bases. The rescue effort snowballed from there. A special Miami Coast Guard Coordination Center took over to assemble the doctors and paramedics with helicopter crews. Help was summoned from St. Petersburg, from Cape Kennedy, from all over the state. As each unit was notified, it in turn notified others. A half dozen hospitals in the area set their prepared emergency plans in motion. Strangely enough, three days before the disaster, the Palmetto Hospital in Miami had held a disaster drill. The fictional situation set up for the drill was precisely what was happening at the moment, the crash of an airliner in the Everglades. Standing on the fractured eggshell, the forward section, Coast Guardsman Schnake felt a psychological boost when he saw the other helicopters approaching, even though they were forced to search laboriously for places to land where there were no bodies, few fragments, and reasonably firm, reasonably firm mud. An Army helicopter approached him precariously. He watched for the shower of shrapnel from the debris first, but it failed to materialize. Then, an inch at a time, the chopper settled within 30 feet of him. He saw the, figure of, the figures of foreign men climb out from the chopper, blowing in the stiff breeze of the rotor wash. They were carrying backboards for the injured. They took Sue Tebbs first, holding the backboard high. Another Army rescuer picked up Adrian Hamilton as Schenck, as Schneck, I keep saying the rush Schenck, sorry, as Schneck helped to slide her off the Middle Island where she was laying. The mud was like quicksand. The short 30 feet to the helicopter was tangled and treacherous. Suddenly, the Army man carrying Adrian stepped into a hole. He lost his footing and began to sink. Schneck was beside him. He managed to grab Adrian just as she started sliding into the water. He held her up and regained his footing as the army man struggled to pull himself out of the hole. By the time Schnick, Schenk, Schnick <laughs> got halfway to the helicopter, he thought he would collapse. He could not believe that he was exhausted so fast. On each step, he would pull up his legs from the suction of the mud that gripped his every movement. He yelled at the chopper crew for a stretcher. Two of the crew climbed off the ship, stumbling toward him with a backboard. Schneck placed Adrian on it and went back to what was left of the cockpit. On the way back, he stumbled into the figure of a man. 
He was moving around some of the bodies in the swamp, bending over them, moving them slightly. Schneck did not want anyone not qualified to move the injured, and he asked him what he was doing. I'm a doctor, the man replied. He had arrived in the helicopter. Schneck was relieved. Good, Schneck told him. There were men in the flight deck that would need help. Schneck led the doctor through the mud, through the debris, towards the hellhole. There was still not enough light, only the flashlights that the men carried with them. The doctor made his way into the cockpit first. Schneck followed him. As the doctor was groping his way down the hellhole, Schneck stopped to look at the captain. Don't worry about that man, the doctor called as he went below. He's gone. Schneck couldn't believe it. All the shock and the efforts he had made hit him. He had tried hard. There was so little he could do. Schneck bent down and examined the captain again. For some reason, he just couldn't believe the doctor. He looked for any of the vital signs. For any vital signs. They weren't there. Captain Loft was dead. But there were the men below, Repo and Donadeo. More, more army rescuers came from the helicopter. From the helicopters had joined him now. Schneck picked up the two smallest because of the tight squeeze through the hatch and the narrowness of the area where the two injured were, were lying below. Two rescuers tried to lift Donadeo up first. Schneck, uh, Schneck above the hatch. He was forced to stand in an awkward position. Donadeo was heavy. The two army men had their hands in his arms and lifted him to the cockpit deck. He struggled, but couldn't do it. He told the other, set him back down. Then he studied the situation, looking down the hellhole. Then he said firmly to Donadeo, you're going to have to help me get you out if you want to get out. They tried again. Snake leaned down and put his arms under Donadeo's armpits. Donadeo grabbed Snake with both, with both arms, in spite of the serious injury to his back. Somehow they got him up. They had less trouble with second officer Repo, though he was obviously badly injured. Both were taken to the waiting helicopters at Wista Hilalea Hospital. There were more choppers coming in as others left the scene with the injured, but the light was still the problem. Rescuers still groping through the dark with only flashlights to guide them. The helicopters needed their night sunlight lights for finding places to land as first priority. Later, they would be used for locating the injured. The struggle to move even a few feet through the muck to a helicopter was exhausting and distressing. The closer the helicopter could get to the injured, the more help they could give. Yet, the uncertain terrain foiled attempts to land close. The choppers still could not hover directly over their wreckage. Even though the metal debris had sunk deeper into the ground, into the mud, the noise and blast from the rotor made it almost impossible to work directly under them. After Repo and Donadeo were removed to the rescue helicopter, Snake remembered the woman who had, been, who had first called to him from the high piece of wreckage. He struggled through the swamp toward her and found that another rescuer was painfully making his way up through the forest of metal to the woman. Everywhere he turned, he could see groups of people in the background, faintly visible in the darkness. They waved slowly, painfully, incessantly. Schneck, Schneck, I'm sorry. Schneck looked for the larger pieces of metal, slogged to them, looked for the people to pull free, looked for people to pull free. He noticed that slowly the crew of rescue workers was growing. They seemed to be working smoothly, quietly, without a central command, but in great instinctive harmony. A game warden on the scene warned them to work in pairs. By the time Schneck reached the tail section, one of the few recognizable sections of the plane, there were many rescuers around. It was good that there were. A man was trapped underneath the heavy set, was underneath the heavy section, unable to move. There was a rapid consultation. Within moments, a score of more rescuers moved without instruction. The enormous tail was lifted. The man was pulled out. As Schneck carried on his his macabre work, Bob Marquis did likewise. Neither was aware of the, of his growing exhaustion. Both were fighting back and inner hysteria and shock, but ignored it. 
there was too much to be done. In one of the small islands of people slowly waving their arms for help and recognition was stewardess Beverly Raposa. She had seen the first flickering light of Bob Marquis's airboat as it approached, at the time when there were no other lights whatsoever in the vicinity. The approach to the lighted pinpoint was agonizing enough in its slowness. In spite of the calls of the group for help, it stopped, moved, stopped again at a great distance from them. But it represented hope, and so did the first helicopters when they arrived. The time between the arrival of the rescuers by swamp, by air, and by torturous levee, and the time that the rescuers were able to get to many of the isolated groups seemed an eternity of frustration and helplessness. Beverly Raposa, competent and conscientious, found it particularly frustrating. She wanted to help to find others who were lost among the debris and muck. Yet every time she tried, it was futile. A little boy was missing. She tried to get off the precarious piece of fuselage where her group was standing to look for him. She stepped off. She sank. She fell. She cut herself again. She had no flashlight, even though one was with her at the time of the crash. It was in her purse, somewhere buried in the tangled mess of the tail section. She wondered about Stephanie Stanich, the stewardess who only moments before the crash had been sitting across the plane from her, waiting for the landing waiting for the landing. Stephanie was nowhere to be seen. There was no sound of her voice calling for help. Beverly was deathly afraid, deeply shocked by the carnage all around her. Yet she knew she had to overcome her fears. Her first instinct had been to yell out quickly and firmly for no one to light a match, regardless of the need for light. She was drenched in jet fuel and swamp water. So were the others. In the darkness, it was a natural impulse to seek light of any kind. A lighted match, she was sure, would incinerate everyone. No one lit a match or lighter. After her abortive attempts to strike out from the metal island they, they were standing on, Beverly knew that something had to be done to keep up the morale of the people. It was now bitter cold. Feebly, she began to sing a Christmas song, Frosty the Snowman. Hesitating, the others began to join in. But the words eluded them. Beverly tried another. This time they did better. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Jingle Bells brought the group alive. Beverly urged them to sing as loudly as possible. They did so. When they finished their Christmas repertoire, they began again and kept it up. In between the songs, the moans and screams were heard around them, nearby and in the distance. But there was nothing Beverly or others could do, except wait. They watched as the helicopters and airboats and shadows of individual rescuers slowly worked their way toward them, then moved away with other victims before reaching their location. It took until three in the morning before five nameless rescuers reached them with a medic more than three hours after the crash, and it wasn't until that time as Beverly was lifted off the debris that she realized how badly her back was injured. Stewardess Judy Smith was also concerned about Stephanie Stanage. As her friend and often roommate on layover, Stephanie had been the last person she talked to before she went up to her jump seat in mid-cabin. It was hopeless, of course, to find, you know, to try to find her. Immediately after the crash, Trudy remembered being help, helped up by her jump seat mate, Sharon Transu, who had never flown a 10 to 11 before and had traded a trip assignment to get Flight 401. Both of them had hung, had hung in the air by their seatbelts. Both crashed down into the wreckage when they released their buckles. Both worried about explosion from the fuel that had flooded their clothes and the impenetrable darkness around them. Like others, Trudy didn't know the extent of her injuries, then smashed vertebrae in both, then smashed vertebrae in both the neck and lower back. Sharon was luckier. Her x-rays would be negative. As the rescuers began to come slowly into the scene, they could do little more than to remain calm in the face of the chaos all around them and helped a few passengers gathered with them to stay calm too. 
One of the passengers was a 12-year-old boy trying desperately to find his father. He was nowhere to be seen or heard. The boy's hands had been singed and blistered by the brief fire that had flashed through the cabin. Trudy took off her jacket, bundled it around the boy's hands, and tried to comfort him. She had to restrain him from moving off into the dark of the swamp to look for his father. Stewardess Pagnissis was the last person that Mercedes Ruiz spoke to before the thunderous roar of the crash. It was all Mercedes remembered of the actual crash. The noise, so loud, she couldn't believe it was real. She thought it was a dream. She lay on her back, and even, and even in pain, the stars looked beautiful over the darkness of the Everglades. But she, but she felt close to death. In fact, in her unconscious, she felt she had died, then crossed back to life again. But Pagissis was nowhere to be seen. When stewardess Dorothy Warnock had, had, had heard the sickening rushing sound of the crash and felt the waterfall come over here in what seemed like slow motion, she thought the plane might have crashed in the Atlantic, perhaps on the sandbar. She thought of the life rafts, but then realized they were in the mudded swamp. She was surprised at the cold. She could faintly see her breath. She found herself in the group of Barry Connell and his wife Anne, as the unexpected sound of Christmas caroling came from faintly across the glades. Their island of despair began to follow suit, singing as though they tried to comfort two singing as they tried to comfort two members who were obviously in serious pain. The woman whose husband was missing lay bleeding with leg wound. Barry Connell took off his coat and covered her with it. Only the distant glow from Miami skyline gave them enough light to make out the shadows of people close in the group. The first sound of Bob Marquise's lonely airboat brought hope and encouragement. And when the helicopters began passing overhead with their night sunlights, there were, there were brief flashes of illumination that helped them try to find the missing husband and the woman who had been sitting with him. One row behind the condos. Three and a half hours later, the rescuers reached them. In the helicopter, they were flown to the Hillelea racetrack, where police cars were waiting to take them to the hospital. The woman's husband had not been found. The same story was reported throughout the jungle of the jagged fragments in Madden Sawgrass. When the rescuers reached Jerry Escal, the transportation executive, he knew he was injured, but not to the extent, which included broken knees, wrist, and pelvis. Near him, he could hear a woman calling out that she was going to drown if, it, if help didn't come soon. She must be close, Escal was thinking, because of the <clears throat> nearness of her voice, yet he could not move and lay, lay, lay helpless himself. It seemed hours before a group of rescuers reached his side. He immediately told them to go to the woman, who needed help more than he did. They did so, but they failed to return right away, and he lay in despair of their ever coming back. As he lay there, he thought, if I ever survive this, I'll be born again. They did not return, and he survived. Lying in the water, his naked body chilled in the coldness of the Everglades, Arnold Infantino continued calling for his wife, Farah. There was no sound in return. He could not stop screaming. Out of the darkness, a woman stumbled by. She was searching frantically for her husband. She saw that Infantino was shivering. Holding back sobs, she took off her jacket and placed it over his chest. Then she disappeared as quickly as she had come into view. Then he saw it, the wavering light of a flashlight coming toward him. It got closer, closer, and finally came down near his face, but he still couldn't stop screaming. All around him, others were screaming too. Even when he reached the hospital where, where the doctors began piecing his dangling right arm together, his screams went on, and always he carried the thought that Farrah must be alive. Al Morris, still bitter and resentful under the terrible trauma of the crash, finally saw a helicopter land not more than a couple of hundred feet away from him. In moments, the man struggled to reach his side. The man took off his coat and put it over one of the survivors near Morris, then turned to him. 
Morris recognized him immediately. It was former astronaut Frank Borman, recently appointed one of the vice presidents of Eastern. Borman assured him he would do everything possible to help. Morris's resentment faded quickly. As Borman stood there, Coast Guardsman Cunningham's chopper finally found a safe landing place near the wreckage. Borman sloshed quickly over to it, then led Cunningham to Cunningham, the co-pilot, and Corman to the group where Morris was huddled. They squeezed as many of the injured as they dared into the chopper. There, the, there was the boy with the burned hand still crying for his father. There was a year-old baby. <clears throat> there were six altogether, old and young, frightened and injured, cold and soaked, as the craft readied itself for takeoff. Cunningham dropped four, pers- four, four personal survivor arc strobe lights in the landing zone so they could find it again when they returned to rescue others. The loaded helicopter rose, banged, and skimmed back across the Everglades toward Miami. It was black almost immediately after the discharge after discharging the survivors at, at Hillelea racetrack. The strobe lights made it easier to land. Within moments, the helicopters had taken off again with a load of ten more survivors. The informal rule set up by the FAA was to leave the dead, search for the living, and get them out as soon as possible. There was nothing that could be done about the dead that night. As the night wore on, the Coast Guard automatically slid into the role of coordinator for the giant rescue effort. But all the others played key parts <clears throat> in what turned out to be an amazingly smooth effort of men and equipment working together with almost impossible communications between civil and military units. Slogging through the swamp to the victims and carrying them to the rescue craft became murderously exhausted, exhausting the rescuers. Carrying a victim for just 20 feet could take 5 or 10 minutes and re- as rescuers sank into the water and mire and tried to keep the victims from sinking into the water with them. Every step was treacherous. Fractured, jagged metal was everywhere, gouging both rescuer and victim alike. Finally, an idea was developed. A human chain was formed like a bucket brigade, stretching several hundred feet from the crash site to the levee. Victims were passed from arms to arms along the human chain. It was painful to the, it was painfully injured, but better than, than, than falling into the swamps and water with an intended rescuer, who could be hopelessly bogged down himself. Dr. Jim Hirschman, the rescue medical advisor for the city of Miami, was dropped at the scene of the carnage by the Coast Guard helicopter at the moment he could get out of there. The communications were bad, but the work of the rescue workers was, 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 was prodigious. Hirschman found that the walkie-talkies brought to the site by some of his team were inaudible at the Miami base stations. He found that it was almost impossible to communicate with his associates at the scene. By necessity and instinct, the men were working in groups of twos to threes, searching for the living, carrying equipment, setting up bases for field stations, with access to airboats and helicopters. Hirschman was separated from a fellow doctor and several of his paramedics almost immediately, and they never did get back together. But they worked in conjunction with the Army, Air Force, and Coast Guard helicopter crews, which were constantly <clears throat> taking off and landing and finally being able to set up gasoline-powered generators for lighting the scene. With radio communication faulty, it was necessary for the researchers to walk through the mud to get to either a helicopter or survivor. The effort was wasteful and costly. A command post was needed, but even without it, the coordination was incredible. For every organization involved, the first priority was rescue. Was rescue. Eastern Vice President Frank Borman was an early arrival at the site, wearing a jumpsuit reminiscent of his days as an astronaut. At the same time, Eastern officials were setting up a method of notifying the bereaved whose families and friends had gone down in the Everglades. It was a clumsy start, springing from the enormity of tragedy and the urgency of immediate rescue work. The breaking of the news of the people waiting at the concourse gate was an urgent priority, too, but a difficult one. 
Preparations had to be made to prevent utter chaos. Quickly, a medical team of Eastern doctors was contacted to report immediately to the ionosphere lounge, the VIP room, which would be set up as the central point for reporting on the survivors of the dead. Special phones were set up. Eastern personnel from customer assistance, sales, ramp agents, and other departments were called in to man the phones and try to ease the pain of the bereaved. It was a complex job, and it took time. The preoccupation with the planning meant a delay for the Eastern officials to send a contingent down to the concourse, where G.D. Welsh was alone at the desk, still unaware of what had happened. In an attempt to plan an organized method, method, there was a delay of almost an hour before key officials were able to formulate a viable plan and make the necessary decisions to go ahead with it. It took considerable, it took considerable time to confirm conclusively that Flight 401 had actually gone down. It took more time to confirm its exact location. Eastern officials realized that false news of a crash, if it hadn't occurred, would create as much havoc as the actual news of the crash. They had to be absolutely sure of their facts before the announcement was made at the waiting gate on the concourse. G.D. Welch was contacted and told that the flight was still on a holding pattern in order to buy time to make these confirmations. They also did not want G.D. alone at the gate to make the official announcement in the waiting group. In the confusion, Didi was all but forgotten, but the pressure on her for more news was becoming unbearable. Her desk on the ramp was surrounded by nearly 100 people, each of them wanting to know why the plane was supposed to be, still be holding the holding pattern and when the flight was going to arrive at the gate. By now, it was nearly an hour past the announcement arrival time. Didi Welch, at the focal point of the whole tragedy, knew less than the, man, than the man on the street at that time because the news was already out on the radio with the first sketchy report that the flight 401 had crashed. Didi and the friends and relatives crowded around her didn't know this, but she did know that she had to get more information and get it quickly. She picked up her phone and called Jim Dunn, a friend of hers, in crew scheduling. Jim was working late at his desk. Just moments before, a friend of his in crew scheduling had <clears throat> burst into the office to say that 401 had gone down. Jim, Didi said on the phone, I'm down at the ramp and I can't get anybody on the phone who can tell me when 401 is going to get in. Jim was startled because he had just heard the news. You mean they haven't told you? Told me what? That 401 is down, crashed in the Everglades. Good God, no, Dee said. Call the tower and say you know. I'll be right down, Jim said. Then he picked up the phone and called the tower. Do you know Dee Dee is all alone down there? Walking down the long concourse towards gate 7, Jim could see the crowd milling around the ramp, agent's desk in the distance. Dee Dee was hidden by them. They were quiet and early, but obviously pressuring for news. A closed-circuit TV screen still blazed in their green phosphorescent letters that 401 was delayed. As he approached the gate, a man was standing by a payphone in the corridor. He suddenly dropped the phone. It dangled, swinging on its cord against the wall. The man rushed toward the crowd at his desk. As he did, he was screaming, You've been lying! You've been lying! The flight has crashed in the Everglades! My wife just heard it on TV! The man dropped on his knees to the floor and grabbed, and grabbed his head. Jim Dunn saw the crowd freeze for a fraction of a second. It was almost a tableau. Then it was as if somebody pulled a switch, <clears throat> as if an electric shock had suddenly gone through a fishbowl. There were screams as everyone seemed to go crazy at that one single moment. They dropped and rolled on the floor. They bounced themselves off the walls. They lay on the floor in total hysteria, screaming, crying, sobbing. It was as if they were in the crash itself, alone. Behind the rap angel's desk, Didi was dazed and stunned by the, sad, by the suddenness of the impact. A team of over a dozen Eastern representatives entered the scene just at that moment, relieving Didi Welch of her loneliness and trying to comfort and console him inconsolable. 
Gently, sympathetically, they began to guide the people down to Concourse 2 toward the Ionosphere Lounge, where the doctors and nurses were already waiting with a central information, <clears throat> information phone that had been set up. In the lounge, Sadie Messina's anxiety was reaching the breaking point from the moment she had heard back at the gate. From the moment she had heard back at the gate, the familiar family whistle her husband always sounded. And yet, there was hope. Her husband Rosaria's name was not on the passenger list when it was finally prepared and posted. Eastern officials helped her phone the Eastern counter at Kennedy to see if he had missed the plane and was waiting there. There was no response to the paging. Then they checked every other airline flying from New York to Florida. His name was not on any list. She clung to the hope that he had taken another flight, gripped a cup of coffee slightly or tightly, and waited. While the initial total burst of frenzy had died down, replaced by the tension of waiting, sounds of hysterical crying would rise and fall in various parts of the room. Some fainted, some half collapsed. Officials would guide the worst of these to the Braniff VIP lounge, where the eastern doctors and nurses could work with less distraction. There was no airline rivalry now. Braniff, Delta, National, United, all, other, all others offered any help they could give. Joan, the wife of Jerry Escal, waited and prayed. Finally, the first list of survivors arrived from the command post. Eastern executives were making up a list as to who was waiting for each particular passenger. A voice from the lounge desk came over the speaker. May we have your attention, it said. We will announce the names and location of those survivors as they come in. Eastern representatives will assist in any way possible to arrange for friends and relatives to go immediately to whichever hospital is involved. As the names of the first survivors were called out, there were shrieks of joy from isolated parts of the room, then a sudden dash from the door to find whatever hospital was involved. When the name of Jerry Escal was announced as being taken to the, to the Hollywood Hospital, north of Miami, Joan Escal collapsed. Others were not so lucky. Sadie Messina waited as list after list of survivors came in. Rosario's name was not on, Rosario's name was not on any, of, any of them. And it was, he turned, as he thinks turned out, a passenger on flight. Nor was the name of Farrah Infantino announced, although her husband, Ronald, would not know that for many hours. He was undergoing hours of intensive surgery at the Hilalea Hospital with the thought that Farrah was still alive kept his hopes and courage up. The wound in his arm was deep, and the doctors worried that this, as they did, worried about this as they did about the deep wounds of the others. Such an injury provided a fertile ground for the possibility of gas gangrene. This complication was dreaded, as bacteria would ferment the sugars in the tissues to create a gas which then would spread rapidly through the other tissues. The major treatment to stop it was removal of the limb or all the tissue involved, sometimes a hopeless situation. Victims fought in the hospitals as the helicopters flew them in from the Everglades. Emergency staffs were waiting and handled the flow with amazing smoothness under the pressure of the situation. Under the direction of Dr. Richard English, the work of the Palmetto Hospital was unusually smooth because of the recent disaster drill held only days before. The victims were bloody, dirty, and grimy, soaked with kerosene-like fuel of the jet aircraft and the Everglades muck. Clothing was in shreds, and many were totally naked from the wind blast, which would strip clothes, shoes, watches, and jewelry on impact. The survivor list grew, but not fast enough. It became slowly apparent that there were more dead than living. The first lists that were compiled showed only a dozen survivors at Mercy Hospital and about a score of, at Palmetto Hospital out of the 160 total, 176 total on the plane. There were other hospitals yet to be heard from, but no one knew how large the survivor list would grow, nor how many names would appear on the missing or presumed dead list. 
the list of the presumed dead was not yet confirmed. It could, it, could, it could be assumed only by the absence of the names from the hospital list. In the Everglades, only the living were being evacuated. The dead were being left where they were until daylight made it possible to find the bodies and bring them out. At the site, Bob Marquis continued to help find the living and bring them to the, bring them to the helicopters or the ambulances on the levee. He had no idea how long he was working, nor did he feel any real exhaustion. It slowly became evident that there were no more cries and screams for help from any part of the scattered debris. All that was left were the silent and the dead. Making a final round in his airboat, Bar Marquis, Bob Marquis looked at the sky. The first streaks of dawn were, were showing over the edge of the flat, wet prairie <clears> of <throat> the Everglades. Marquis turned his boat toward the Tamiami Trail, zigzagged through the twisting matted sawgrass trail, and reached the sandy ramp where his car and trailer waited. He loaded the airboat on the, the airboat on the trailer and drove toward Miami toward home. At the same time, Coast Guardsman Schnick was satisfied, along with the rest of the army of rescue workers, that there were no more living left to evacuate. He didn't look at his watch. He too looked up at the sky and saw the sun coming up. He could leave the site now, but the scene that had happened the night would never leave him. In the growing daylight, fresh workers arrived at the glades to look for the bodies, tag them, and slide them into heavy black plastic zippered bags. The list of confirmed dead began to grow, slowly at first, then at a greater tempo as the sun climbed higher in the sky on Saturday morning. The bodies were numbered, and whatever there was in the way of clothing and identification were slid in the bags with them. Helicopters continued to settle and rise, bringing the bodies to ambulances and hearses, which in turn took them to the county morgue at Jackson Memorial Hospital. The morgue was not very large, hardly enough to hold more than a score of bodies. Large refrigerated trailer trucks were rented and rolled into place in the hospital parking lot. Families and friends were urged not to come until they were notified. They came anyway, wanting to make sure that the final waiting was over. Some had to be restrained from trying to enter the trucks, where their finger were fingerprinting and attempts at identification were being made by county officials and FBI specialists. The news of the crash of Flight 401 hit Doris Elliott and her crewmates the moment they stepped off Flight 477 at Fort Lauderdale. Doris had all but forgotten her strange but intense premonition that an L-1011 was going to crash in the Everglades during the holiday season. She was stunned. The memory of her tragic forecast flooded back to her. When she got home, she woke her roommate. Do you remember what I told you two weeks ago? She said. God, Doris, I remember it like yesterday. Almost the exact time and place. Almost the exact time and place, Doris said. Two other girls were there with us when you said it. Doris sat up and dropped her head into her hands. I wish I was I wish I hadn't seen that in my mind. I wish I hadn't mentioned it. It's not your fault, her roommate said. You can't take on the guilt for it. I know, Doris said, but I'm sick. I'm absolutely sick. We almost were on the flight ourselves before they rescheduled us. I knew that was going to happen too, Doris said. I knew it was going to be close, remember? I remember. You know something, Doris said? I wish I wouldn't get these pictures in my mind. But Doris Elliott's vivid premonitions, confirmed by three other flight attendants, was the only one of many stranger events that followed in the wake of the tragedy of Flight 401. All right, guys. Uh, that puts us to Chapter 5 for next week. And uh, <clears throat> it's a great book. Long chapters, but really good. So I want to thank you guys for coming today to hear, to hear the reading. And tomorrow, we're back on our regular time at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And Steve, um, Steve uh, Ugani is going to be with us, and we're going to be talking. We're going to be talking about Elvis, 
and uh, the mysteries behind yeah the mysteries behind Elvis's death, because apparently it's not as cut and dry as the press uh, made it out to be. Again, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight, and I hope you uh, I can't say enjoyed the reading because it's it, it's very sad at this point in the book, you know, about what, what happened to these people and, and the rescue and everything. But at least it gives you a feel, and you know, you know, gives you an idea how the airlines work. Whether they have the same procedures now, I don't know. But uh, that's what it is. But anyway, tomorrow at uh, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, and I will be talking with Steve Uruguani about Elvis. So uh, also, you know, we are a nonprofit, so if you feel it in your heart that you could donate uh, a few coins to us, that would be great. Uh, you know, to keep the show on the air and keep us going. Uh, that would be at paypal.me at California Haunts, or go to Venmo and type in California Haunts, and you can do it from there. Also, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're um, <clears throat> we're equal opportunity here, so um, you know because we want to keep getting the word out about it. And if you like what you see in any of our other videos or this video or whatever, um, go ahead and uh, subscribe if you're watching from YouTube. That would be great too. Anyway, I'll see you guys tomorrow, and have a good rest of your weekend.